Hey there, and welcome to The Post, a Redemption Church podcast. I'm your host for today, Amy Steed. We've got a great show for you today. We'll be touching on a few questions that people from our church have been asking. We are joined today by our lead pastor. Is that how we're gonna do it? Everyone has to introduce themselves with their little game button. Okay, I'm just kidding. Okay, Josh, Toby, we are here to hear your, yes. Josh. Here we go. (laughs) I'm not going to do mine because I'm the host. You just get to wait when I win this game in a little bit, so. Here we go, JP, you have the Christmas movie trivia, right? Yeah, we're going to kick it off with uh, cr- name that Christmas movie. Wait, I'm sorry. I didn't introduce like the the real the real host of this all, the post. The host orig- of the post. <laughs> originator. No, JP Gaylord. He is here too. Hi, everybody. I don't have a fun little button that says my name, so... <laughs> But that's okay. It's okay. We need to jump into this game because I think it's going to be fun. And I probably wrote down too many Christmas movie quotes, so it might take too long. Uh, Oh, yeah. Speaking of which, since we're talking about movies, this would be a good time for our disclaimer. I'm surprised I don't have this uh, memorized. But the previously cited or the soon-to-be-cited movies are not endorsed by Redemption Church or its leadership. They have not been checked for inappropriate or offensive content and should be engaged with at the consumer's own risk. That being said... Let's quote some movies. Uh, so the idea is the first name I hear from a button being pressed uh, gets the first shot at naming the movie. Oh my <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> if only there was video. If Y'all. only. Charles, are you Charles, even Charles, are you going to participate? All right. He's Let's ready for the next Quote number right. one. We elves tried to stick to the four main food groups. Oh. Wait, are we just supposed to say the, the hey, movie? No, don't, yeah. Don't have a conversation. Give the answer. You, you both yeah, elf. Oh. Yep, that is correct. The movie is Elf. The well remainder of the quote was candy, candy canes, candy corn, and syrup. Yeah. Can we Was I supposed interrupt? to finish it? Yeah, are we supposed to let Oh, yeah, the you can totally go. interrupt. Oh, but okay. as soon as I okay. hear a name, I'm going to stop reading the quote. Gotcha, okay. Wait. No, go ahead. Okay. Are we, a cheater. Are we oh, so are we supposed to? Your name is literally the loudest. Hold on a second. Amy! Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Stevie! Here, let's see. Amy! Okay, yeah, now I'm on the level. Awesome. Please don't shake the table, Josh. Wow, Josh, he's getting real intense over here. He wants to win. He's a All winner. Right. Number two might be a little more difficult. Number two. No one should be alone on Christmas. Home alone. Nope. Close, though. We're not taking away negative points, so you might as well just... There's no more to this quote? No, that's it. Nope, that's it. Can you give us a hint? Um, No one should be alone on Christmas. (laughs) Is it an animated movie? It is both an animated and a live-action movie. There are two different versions, at least. Oh, oh. Yes, Amy. The Grinch stole went. The Grinch stole Christmas. The Grinch. Uh, that's incorrect. The correct title is "How the Grinch Stole Christmas." <laughs> the Grinch stole some Christmas stuff. Is that the title? I'm right. You're wrong. I don't care. I win. All I'm right. Zippity doo da. We'll give you a half point on that. Yeah, one point two five points. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. Next one. 
Everybody ready? Mm -hmm. You can mess with a lot of things, but you can't mess with kids on Christmas. Mm, that's deep. These are hard. Steve. Is it Fred Claus? It is not Fred Claus. Can I ask a question? Are these all kids' movies? Uh, these are all Christmas movies. Mm. Okay. Is Elf a kids' movie? My kids have watched it. Is that the, uh, the criteria that makes a kids' movie? <laughs> Amy's kids have watched Elf. Yes. My kids have watched Elf. So this is an often quoted movie, but maybe a deeper cut in terms of quotes. Okay. Can you again? repeat it? Yes, you can mess with a lot of things, but you can't mess with kids on Christmas. Oh, I've heard the line. <gasps> oh, yeah. my word, oh, my word. The Santa Claus. No. Oh. Nope. I was, I was. A any other guesses? Yeah. Home Alone. Very close, but no. Wait, you keep saying very close. I'm confused by that. Charles keeps saying Home Alone. Home Alone, yeah. Is it Home Alone 2? Steve with yeah. the points. Come on. <laughs> You're, you're very if she, close. Clue, if, if she gets a point for how the Grinch yeah, steals Christmas, all I got was Hi, the Grinch steals Christmas. That is not how I sounded, and I need I somebody to back me number, up on this. And she forgot words. Was that she got points? I, I forgot one points. word. But she was very excited about Maybe her one two. answer, and her arms yeah, were flopping on. Yeah, uh, in excitement. And I was completely wrong. You're right, but it's a totally different movie. It's a totally different movie. I'm the host. I make the rules. That Charles doesn't get points. Home Alone! <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, sorry, Charles. Steve, your Amy impersonation is starting to sound more like a Harry Carey impersonation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think right. I'm offended by that. Next one. Here we go. Okay. Uh, I would be surprised if anyone gets this. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? <laughs> Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. Yes! <laughs> wow. done. That right, was Charles that. for the win. I don't think I've seen yeah, then, I haven't watched that movie in a really long time. Then uh, his little, the little blanky guy comes out and tells the whole story of Luke chapter two. No. You've never seen the the Charlie Brown Christmas? I haven't seen it in a while. So ever? Mm, I really don't know if I have. It's really All Christian the way because it actually has the whole nativity story. Oh, you should go home and watch that tonight yeah. with your kids. Not Elf. Don't tell me what to do. All right. Mm. On that note, I feel like I've heard this next one quoted in the office in the past week, so we'll see how it goes. Amy's already ringing in. There's a certain magic that comes with the very first snow. For when the first snow... Yeah. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Wrong. No. <laughs> Josh, For, you need us to chime in. You're not doing very well in this game. When the first snow is also a Christmas snow, well, something wonderful is bound to happen. Can I... Do twice or do it's I? Have to yeah, sure. Yeah, Frosty the Snowman. There it is. Yeah. Yep. Well, my bad. Yeah, that's from the weird snowman guy with the mustache. Mm -hmm. the awesome. All I know is Josh has zero points. Uh, I think Steve has zero points too. No, so he got home alone too. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. I know about three movies, so I knew Alf. He's waiting I knew for that those. one. All right. Well, let's keep this moving along. The next quote is, "I will honor Christmas in my heart and try and keep it all year, all the year." Yeah. We need a hint. The Polar Express. No. Uh, think a book written before this century. Is it Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? You're correct. Oh, 
Come on. Very good. That was a good hint. Yeah. That was a good hint. All right. Well, this next one, I it's either going to be Charles or nobody on this next one. Home Alone! <laughs> the quote is, Christmas is just about my favorite time. Ever since I was a little kid, I always felt like it was my own personal holiday. Is it a Christmas story? It is not. Charles, you're supposed to be chiming in. This is you. I, apparently, I'm supposed to be. How do you not know this? What did you say, Steve? A Christmas story. Is it Charles in Charge Christmas episode? What? No, it is not. <laughs> I'm going to go is is made in the last thing? 20 years. That's your hint. Last 20 years? Maybe 30 years? I don't know. I'm getting older. All right. No guesses from Charles or Josh? I yelled Home Alone. And it was wrong. Okay. We need another hint. Um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Nope. <laughs> Christmas, whatever that this is. This one comes from <laughs> Christmas with the Cranks. Nope. <laughs> Ernest Saves Christmas. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. That <laughs> family that a long classic. Time. Just throwing out Christmas. That was, All I right. like those movies back in the 80s. Next quote. Oh, Eggs erroneous. <laughs> <laughs> the next quote is, Sorry. you'll shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> oh, man. No, no. Oh. That was Josh. <laughs> was that Josh? I don't know. I, I say Josh. Okay, we'll give Josh a shot at it. Rudolph the Red <laughs> Christmas Story. It's a Christmas, a Christmas story. story. I've been no in the house. For you. Are, you give him the house. A half, are you going to give him a half a point? He didn't say it all. Yeah, uh, yeah hey. I'll give Josh a full point. Rude. Hey, what about a Christmas story? <laughs> that is not how I sound, by the way. It's exactly how you What sounded. does it sound like when Amy says, Cubs win? <laughs> <laughs> Cubs win. <laughs> All right, we got we Thanks. got two, we got two more left. The next quote is, "Are you serious, Clark?" Uh, that was Steve. Christmas vacation. Christmas vacation. No. That is correct. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Ah, full points to Steve. No, <laughs> that is not. How we we could just sit game. and talk about that movie for a while and share all sorts of quotes. Yeah, we could. We could, yeah. put everyone on the, the Christmas tree. The last scene. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yes. we, don't, we don't have time for all the disclaimers we have to read. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> all right. And the last one. Every time a bell rings. Oh, come on. The Polar Express. No. no. <laughs> no. It's a wonderful life. Oh, my word. Yes. That point goes yes. to Charles. All I could think of was the boy ringing his bell. No. Yeah. All right. Uh, Attaboy, Clark. Josh, Wait a minute. Points? Are we absolutely positive that that line doesn't occur at the very end of Polar Express where Tom Hanks says, now every time a bell rings... An angel gets its wings? That's only from Definitely It's a Wonderful Life. Did he finish the phrase? When I when I buzzed, had he said that part yet? I contest this decision. I think I got the <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life. 100% incorrect. It's definitely not in Polar Express. <laughs> yeah. Charles, how many points do you have? Uh, not enough. Okay. Steve? I think you do. Uh, yeah. I do. I have like four. more than Amy. No. All right. I think that makes. I think it's no. Charles, Steve, no. me, then Amy. Oh my word! I win. I got two. I I think that I have a full two points. We gave I you won, Elf. I won this you redemption elf. Christmas ornament. There you go. I feel like there's a tie, there's a three way tie. Doesn't Charles, Steve, and myself have two points? I have four. I wasn't. You I'll do? take track. So. You have four. <laughs> mm -hmm. Charles wins. Charles wins. All right, Charles wins. Congratulations. It's a wonderful life. Charles. Pulls it off. It is a wonderful life. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, with that, let's transition into some discussion questions.
Amy, thanks for playing with us. Amy has apparently more spiritual things to do, so she is going to... Like a dentist appointment? And yes. I have a sick kiddo at home, so have fun. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for bringing your sickness to the office. Um, please. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to jump into pastoral mailbag because we've gotten a number of different questions, and uh, it is our, our duty and our responsibility to answer those here on the podcast. Uh, the first question comes from Paul Hap, and let me pull it up on my phone here. Paul is wondering, uh, in light of the worship episode that we had done, um, give me just a second. He says, I've seen an increasing amount of discussion saying we shouldn't sing songs from or listen to or otherwise support ministries like Hillsong, Elevation, Maverick City, etc., mostly because of the type of gospel they are promoting. How would redemption respond? I think it is something that's being debated constantly over the last, specifically the last two years. I feel like it's really popped up a lot. But we have a mantra that we stole from someone else that things can be received, they can be redeemed, or they should be rejected. And we believe if a song is grounded in biblical truth, wherever that comes from, we can receive it or we can redeem it. So we've kind of had that, that stance and all sorts of things. And, you know, there's certain ministries that we might sing songs from because we think the song promotes gospel clarity, but we might not promote that church. Um, so that would be an example of us saying we're receiving the song or redeeming the song out of the context in which it was written. Yeah, and I also wouldn't go as far to say that these churches, while very different theologically from where we stand, I wouldn't go as far to say that they're not believers either. So when I, you know, probably the two of the hottest churches that are probably being debated would be songs out of Bethel, songs out of Elevation. And while they're very different, I wouldn't, there's nothing about what they sing or even what they do as a church that really, for me personally, leads me to believe, oh, these are not, these are not followers of Jesus. Quite plainly, because I don't think you necessarily can write the stuff from a worship song perspective. We, you and I have had this conversation many times, like as, as maybe sometimes strange as that church and how it functions and the things that it does, that it can be, the stuff that they're writing with gospel clarity, with redemption clarity, with Jesus clarity is pretty mind-blowing. And I would argue sometimes is even more clear on the gospel and Jesus and what he's done than other churches that maybe we would align with. And so um, we, we haven't redeemed or received all of the songs coming out of those camps um, because we do filter it through our own filter and who we are as a church, but there have been many songs that we ha absolutely have received uh, and not rejected because they say true things about the Lord that we believe um, will direct the hearts of our people where it needs to be. You know, we talked earlier too, there's other things we battle as Christians, right? Um, we buy products from all sorts of stores that don't align with the Bible. Yeah, like where does that where does that where, rabbit trail end? Where does it end, right? Like I'm, I Pepsi is my favorite my, my favorite drink, but the things that Pepsi stands for, I certainly don't. You know what I mean? So do I not drink Pepsi anymore? Or you know, we talk about Target a few years back, right? This the decisions they made related to their public restrooms, right? And a lot of Christians were saying, we're standing against Target, but that seems to wear away, and then people just go back. But the, the point is, these, these, this tension exists in many places in our life, as well as in the church. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I also don't believe, you know, that when, you know, I don't think that, that churches are profiting necessarily from churches doing their songs. I think songwriters are. And again, that speaks to my personal belief that I don't believe some of these individuals from these different camps are unsaved. Do they do things that we wouldn't, do they believe things that we don't believe? Yep. Um, do they maybe practice things that as a church we have decided is not best for our community um, of believers? Yep. But do I believe that they're unsaved? No, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. And so I'm happy to support people who are writing songs for the church, capital C, um, that further the kingdom, capital K. There's also another example of you rattle off a few different things, right? There are churches that do things that we think might be actually wrong and we might still do that song because we're going to redeem it out of a situation. Also, I think you could speak to a lot of popular worship music, even written under a specific umbrella, has multiple different voices going from multiple different writers from multiple churches are getting together to do certain things. So there's multiple fingerprints, I should say, on across worship songs. Yeah, even okay. more so today. Like now when you look at the songwriting credits, there's like sometimes there's like 10 names on that thing. So like some of those camps, I guess, that are represented by those people are things that we would agree with and others we don't. I just feel like that's an un, that's a, a, an impossible conviction to hold in your heart that I will not do songs from this camp because then you're going to find that you're only going to be able to do songs from your camp. Yeah. And I think if you go back and you challenge some of the underlying um, principles or, you know, arguments in that, uh, it may sound really, really good to say, well, I don't agree with this church. They seem to be promoting a false gospel. Therefore, I won't sing any of the songs. I think there are two things that come out. One is, what do you mean by false gospel? And Steve, you kind of addressed that. Specifically, what are you talking about? Because like, what have they said or how are they promoting a false gospel? And are you sure you've understood that in the context of the sermon? I mean, we joked with Josh, uh, what, a few months ago uh, during a podcast where you kind of inadvertently said something along the lines of Jesus not being alive or something like that. So you can, you know, uh, and I've got to imagine if you're preaching 40 to 50 weeks out of the year, there are bound to be things that come out of your mouth inadvertently that ripped out of context could be taken totally the wrong way. So, you know, in the interest of Christian grace, love, and charity, let's make sure that when we're citing things like this, that we're also putting it back into context and really seeking to understand why are we calling things false gospels. Yeah, and I actually agree with the spirit behind this question. I, I think it's a, um, a really valuable and a smart and discerning thing to consider the source of where it comes from. Um, but, but again, I, we spend most of our, I don't believe they're unbelievers, and we spend most of our time when we listen to music, when I listen to music and decide, hey, what do we want? What's beneficial to teach redemption? Um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the theological statements of those particular bodies of believers. Um, I spend a lot of time dissecting the clarity of the words itself and do these songs point people to Jesus in a powerful way. If they do, I frankly don't care about where the genesis was of that song. I care more about what that song says. That's good. Charles, anything about all this? I think one of the hard things is even in the history of the church, you have um, like much of our old hymnody. So I am, come from a very traditional church. Much of that came out of um, Catholic church, which we would not be theologically in agreement with. Yet 
we still sing many of these songs. And a lot of the old melodies came out of pubs. So again, they were potentially offensive, but some of that uh, taboo, I guess you could use the term, has been lost. And I think if you are acting... I heard it said, because this debate is not the first time, this isn't the first time this question's been answered by theologians in America especially, but I guess more even worldwide. But one of the things that was stated, which again, take it for what it's worth, is as long as there's more ignorance to the background of a song, then there's more freedom potentially to enjoy the song lyrically. When you start diving into some of the background of some of those things and it potentially becomes offensive or um, more disagreements, that's when wisdom actually needs to be put in place. So you can say, well, maybe it should give us some pause, not to say that we're, I think as Steve, you said, we're not adhering to every single thing that is stated within this lack of term organization or this certain belief system because lyrically they're going to have very general lyrics that are Christian and good. If you dive into it deeper, then you start realizing, okay, there is something that is amiss here, but the use of it for the edification of God's people potentially still can be utilized well. I think if everybody started having concerns at redemption over the fact of the background of this, and let's say that there was a stronghold of that sort of theology that was in a sense offensive and also leading people away, then perhaps then we would have to jettison and rethink some of the aspect of it. Just, that's just my opinion yeah. about it. I also think like we pay um, CCLI uh, license fees every year. That's, that's to give us as a church the legal right to do some of these copywritten songs. And um, I don't know if we're following all the rules here. I think, I think we still are. We could provide that copyright information to anybody who would ask. We have it, but we choose not to put it on the screen because I feel like putting the writers of these um, songs that we're doing on the screen is actually a distraction. And I would include myself in that. When we do a song that I've written, I actually don't want people, I might say that like the first time we do a song, hey, the Lord gave me the song, laid it on my heart. But I actually wouldn't want to put that on the screen because then what everybody sees at the end of their time of worshiping is, oh, Steve wrote that? In the same way, people could totally engage with the Lord. And at the very end, they might see Brian Johnson from Bethel and they're out. Now I've completely robbed them of the, of, the, of the prayer that they were just singing in their heart to the Lord because I put a name from a church that they disagree with. It, to me, it can cause more division than unity. Fun story. Uh, when Brian Johnson first started writing songs and I saw his name pop up on credits, I think one of the guys from the Backstreet Boys, his name was Brian Johnson as well. And I thought, oh, well, that's cool. I didn't realize the Backstreet Boys were writing Christian music. Turns Tell out, me why. <laughs> Sorry. Not the same guy, though. Uh, Correct. Just to clarify. Awesome. I, would, I would also challenge people, like in terms of even Brian Johnson, I've read some of his material. I, I think it would be, I would be hard-pressed to put him outside of the camp of Christianity and evangelicalism. I might not agree with all of the practical outputs of his theological understanding of how this actually looks, but he has a sound understanding of Jesus Christ as the savior of the world, the one who has died for the propitiation of sin. Like he makes these statements. I've read, I mean, again, I challenge you to not just lump people into something that you think, well, that's because have you actually, is this hearsay or is this something that you've sought out yourself in terms of all of these different 
groups. And that's what I mean about, I think people often immediately write people into, you know, the heretic camp. You know, um, do Brian and Jen Johnson, do the church organization that they are, are from, do we agree theologically with everything they do and how they do it? No, we don't. Have I heard Jen Johnson say some pretty goofy things um, you know, that are posted to YouTube. Yes. Have I equally heard her clearly outline um, the exclusivity of Jesus being the only savior, the only pathway to God, the only path? Yes. And so it's because, yeah, I don't think they're out the, outside of the camp. So that's why I have a piece about receiving and redeeming what we can from those camps. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way, we have also rejected certain things from those camps. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? We talked about that, you know, a few podcast episodes. Um, so we don't take it lightly. I really, I really appreciate the, the conversation and the spirit of the question instead of just like, you know, accusing and saying, hey, you should never do uh, those songs. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thank you very much, Paul, for that question. Uh, we hope we answered it. If you have any further questions, please let us know. All right. Next question. This one comes from Jesse Pipe. Uh, in Genesis 8.21, it says, quote, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, end quote. What is the significance of the smell of the sacrifice? Is God meant to be figuratively or literally smelling what was offered? What do you guys think? First of all, context, uh, Genesis 8.21, I'm guessing this is Noah, and Noah has probably just gotten off the ark. Yeah, and he makes a burnt offering to the Lord. And verse 21 says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. In fact, he actually uses the word never three times. Uh, he uses it in 21 to never curse the ground. Uh, he uses it in 21 again, um, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature. And then in verse 22, when he talks about seasons, it says it shall not cease. So he actually uses this highlight of, of never three different times there. And, I, and you know, I, I haven't dove into that to know if this is like a physical thing, but I think it could be a physical thing. Uh, we see other uh, examples of Christ being present all over, all over the Bible. Um, and so I think, it, I think it could be. I think also we see what Noah did is heavily speaks to what happens in the Old Testament with sacrifices. You go read the book of Leviticus, you see that very heavily with burnt offerings. And um, Noah did every kind of animal um, here, which was the first thing he did to give gratitude in his heart for the salvation that he found through the flood by being able to be in the ark. Um, but I also know that burnt offering was a picture of making a sacrifice for sin, which was a picture of what was to come ultimately and the person, the work of Jesus. And so what God is actually smelling, I think, is actually appeasing some aspect of his anger, right? Because we know that he says that the heart is evil from youth. That's a, a direct correlation to what he said in 6.5 with Noah, that the, the, the heart is evil with, with every intention continually, he says. And so God has a righteous anger that is right, that if he carried out justice to appease that, it would result in all of us being destroyed. So I think here Noah's making a sacrifice. God is responding. His response is uh, he, it was a pleasing smell to him. And I think that actually soothes a little bit his anger. And I think it actually gives rest uh, to the rest of creation as well. And so I think it's a very interesting dynamic here. And, you know, for me to 100% say that it's physical, you know, I, I don't know. I, I haven't dove into it, but I would say it could be. 
Mm-hmm. It could be. Can can I make one observation and and ask a question? Hopefully they're quick. Uh, the first observation is the terrible irony of those animals surviving the flood, yeah. being rescued <laughs> from drowning on the earth to then be sacrificed. Yeah, yeah let's get off. Whoa, 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 what are you doing, Noah? <laughs> yeah. Noah. Uh, and then the question is: My understanding of a burnt offering is that like you're not just grilling it, but you're charring it, like you're. Yeah. It's carbonizing, right? Yeah. Like totally gone, totally inedible. Uh, I've done that before, and it usually doesn't smell good. So when we have this idea of pleasing aroma, uh, it's got to be more of a spiritual thing than, a, or maybe a learned taste at some point. But it could be less about the actual smell. Yeah. Too. Okay. Is, I don't know. Because it's, it's not like, yeah, it's not like a cooking sna- steak where you smell it and you're like, oh, oh man, great. I'm Get hungry Get it off right at the right now. temperature. Oh, no, this is a piece of lump of coal now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah. It's burnt fur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Hair doesn't, burnt hair doesn't smell good either. Yep. All right. Uh, Charles, Steve, any thoughts on this? Charles is probably going to have the very in-depth theological, which I'm actually very interested to hear. But just to repeat what Josh says, like numerous times in the Old Testament, that actual phrase, the aroma is pleasing to the Lord, um, comes up in, and then it comes up in 2 Corinthians again and refers to us as the pleasing aroma. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There's something about... Yeah, I don't know if it's a literal smell, but there's something about how God is using that word to identify with... Um, something happening in the offering that's noticeable, that that we're taking note of. Well, how do we do that when we when we cook? We, you know, I, I come home and my wife is cooking dinner or whatever. I smell something. I notice something. There's something that's happening around me. And I think the same way, you know, that's pleasing. God's noticing what his people are doing. He's taking note of that in the same way that we as followers of Jesus should be noticed among those who are saved and among those who are perishing as something's happening. I'm noticing it. It's that word picture of, I, I smell something. What is that? Do you know what I mean? Um, that's how I kind of receive that. So maybe it's not so much the, the physical appearance of something, but when you smell something, you know, you're like, well, what is that? You look around not expecting to physically perceive it. You just notice there's something different. Yeah, and how awesome is it too, though? You know, when we think of it that way, we certainly, you know, there's a difference in my home when we cook broccoli to when we cook something that actually tastes good. Like it's one's pleasing and one's not, you know, that, that, that these sacrifices, these offerings of our heart are things that are, that God's taking note and he's pleased by it. And I think, Pretty that's, awesome. I think that's the key. It's like, it's, I think it's the heart behind the sacrifice that is actually pleasing God, not just the sacrifice itself. And so God just got done stating, knowing that every heart is evil continually in chapter six. Here in chapter eight, every heart is evil from its youth. Yet here's a man right now saying, God, thank you for all that you've done for me. And so I think that kind of heart motive, which is what he sees, our motives are laid bare before him. He clearly sees that. And I think that alone is is pleasing to him. That's good. Yeah, so I would use the word fellowship is a good word for sacrifices. Like you said, it's to take notice. Typically when there was sacrifices, if you think of the story of Elijah on the Mount Carmel with the Baal prophets, right? They're offering sacrifices. They're trying to get the attention of Baal. And he mockingly said, oh, he's probably going to the bathroom. He's not able to respond to your sacrifice. In other words, you're drawing the attention or the notice of God. When Noah does this, 
the pleasingness. Notice this isn't just an aroma. It is a pleasing aroma. The, I think the pleasing is really the, the key part there because that is united, as we notice of Noah's life, of a faithfulness, a faith in God. I would say the same thing is implicitly, not explicitly stated in um, Cain and Abel. So Abel's sacrifice was received by the Lord. Cain had a sacrifice as well. It was not united with faith. So it was not acceptable before the Lord. There's nothing to say that his was not good. It just was not united with faith. Abel's was. Noah's was as well. When you read throughout the, the Pentateuch in Leviticus and even Exodus, you start hearing this. The priests are the ones who are offering these sacrifices. All of these sacrifices are given by people who want to come and fellowship with the Lord. They're coming to a temple or a tabernacle or wherever the sacrifices were at the time to be with God. The problem is, is that it stopped being united by faith and therefore it stopped being pleasing to the Lord. An example of this is Isaiah. I was just reading this in Isaiah chapter one. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams. I've had enough of the fat of your well-fed beasts. I don't delight in these any more. He says, when you come to appear before me, again, to fellowship with me, don't bring your vain offerings anymore. It's actually an, an abomination to me. Your incense, the aroma that I'm smelling, it's the same sacrifice. It's not united by faith. It is not something going to the Lord. So it's lost its pleasing nature. You turn over and I appreciate Steve sharing about 2 Corinthians because that passage also says we're that aroma. But before that, Ephesians 5 says that Jesus Christ, we're to walk in love as Christ loved us. And notice it says, it gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Over and over again, in the life of Jesus, you have God the Father saying of Jesus, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. You have that pleasing nature of Jesus Christ so that when his sacrifice was made, obviously the indication would be it would be accepted by God the Father. That was evidenced by the resurrection of the pleasing, full pleasing nature of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. But he says he's a pleasing, fragrant offering to the Lord. And you and I are to seek that which is pleasing to the Lord, our lives being those very sacrifices now. Aroma, acts of faith are the things that God smells. I don't think it's necessarily physical smell because if you can do something spiritual, uh, I think though the, the aspect of it is this was a normal understanding of how the gods interacted with um, their worshipers. And so Noah is a worshiper giving God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of potential propitiation, of sin, of recognizing his dependence and his uh, relationship with God. And God is pleased with Noah and his sacrifice. That's good. So it sounds like physical, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, it's, maybe it's, it's a, a part uh, of anthropomorphism. Like when it says the hand of the Lord mm -hmm. saves, like that obviously God the Father, if we're looking at it, and there's not really like a giant nose in the clouds where it just, oh, yeah, yeah that's good. You know, I, okay. I don't think so. Fair enough. Uh, great. And then another question Jesse had was, as an extension of the concept of God's unilateral covenant with his people, i.e., uh, he is faithful when we are not. That's what unilateral covenant means. Why does God's promise come after Noah's sacrifice instead of perhaps preceding Noah's sacrifice? Well, the promise of the covenant does come before the sacrifice. And it comes, I think, in chapter seven. Is it seven? Six. six chapter six. Um, when he tells Noah to make himself an ark, and verse 14 of chapter six, verse 17 says, behold, 
I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And so he, he, makes, he gives the first aspect of the covenant before Noah actually makes the sacrifice, just to speak to that. Yeah, and I was gonna, I jokingly said I had an alliteration to, to share, but I was thinking that along the same lines that the, the promise actually wasn't, it, was, it culminated in the, the, the end, the sign, the rainbow, but the promise of God was actually, it began with the plan and the provision. You know, so Noah knew that God was promising something. Oh, of course, it took trust on Noah's part that God was going to come through. But the promise was given before the before the symbol was given. In a similar way, you know, my wife wears a wedding ring, but I promised before I gave her the ring. You know what I mean? When I asked her to be my wife, uh, you know, in my heart, I was promising that I wanted to be with her forever, expecting that she wanted to be with me forever till death. But the but the ring is the symbol. Um, the sign of that, um, but yeah, it's good. I would just add one thing. Like if you look at the statements, you see even a pattern of God saying in this passage in particular that I will establish my covenant. It was already made with creation. This is one of the things of looking at the Edenic or the first covenant that God made because He made everything, so He actually cared about it. So then, when He preserves the the people and creatures on the ark. It is to fulfill the promise of what he did in Eden and what he promised in Eden and then bringing it about through Noah. So it's not, it even goes back further, but the sign of the rainbow, and I agree, like that's the hard part is when is the sign actually, is that establishing the covenant or is that just affirming or confirming that which was already stated? I would say, look at the covenant to Abraham. Right, Abraham in Genesis 12 is told, go, leave your people and I'll bless you. I'll make your na name great and all of this. Then in 15, he cuts the animals in half. They walk through. Then in 17, he actually makes the sign of circumcision. So that's later on down. Then in Genesis 22, you have the sacrifice of Isaac. You have him actually making a sacrifice. And then God's saying, now I know that I will absolutely do this. So you almost have like this constant reiteration and confirmation of that which God is going to do. And I think part of it is one, to show again the faithfulness of God and his word, the delight of God to actually prove himself faithful. He doesn't have to put a rainbow there to prove his covenant. Is this word not enough? No, it is. But he wants you and I to know, here's a visible reminder. That's why they're setting up stones. That's why they're looking at all of these things. There are visible representations of God's faithfulness that you and I need. God doesn't need them. And so when you have that over and over again, it's really, it's on our part, the fact that we're the ones that are going to wander away from this covenant. And so God visibly, in a sense, puts it there and says, I'm going to remember even when you forget. I love that, yeah. And it's beautiful, tw twice though, in that text, God says, I'll, when I see it, I'll remember. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so it is a sign that he gives. Of course, he doesn't ever forget the covenant that he makes with his people. Yeah. But he says, hey, even when I see the rainbow in the cloud, I'll remember my commitment yeah. that I've made. So it's, so it's all of us get to remember. That's awesome. Thanks, guys. Uh, Jesse, I hope that answers your two questions sufficiently. If not, uh, feel free to let us know, and we'll, we'll bring it back up. We'll address it again. Uh, we've got one more question left. Uh, for a lot of people, going through the holidays uh, may be a little bit more difficult or challenging uh, because of grief. And so I just wanted to ask, uh, what are your 
pastoral tips, advice, what would you say to somebody who is facing uh, Christmas or the holidays uh, and is feeling a significant amount of grief? Uh, a few things kind of my mind. A, um, that's okay um, to acknowledge that, to own it, to, uh, but off the heels of that, um, to, to make sure you're surrounded, um, that you're not alone, uh, that you're surrounded by uh, friends, by those who will encourage, um, that you're surrounded by the right people that will speak the right things. We were just sharing uh, this morning a story of a family in our community who's really struggling as I think many, many people have um, when facing crisis. They're struggling with, you know, really believing the promise of God's goodness and his kindness. And I think it's important uh, to not only seek God in his word, but also to pray for and make deliberate choices to make sure that you're surrounded by people who will remind you of that promise, that no matter how much it hurts, no matter the loneliness, no matter what you're facing, uh, God has made a promise, and that is his promise is for you. His promise is he cares for you. Uh, his promise is to be present for you in your deepest, darkest valleys. We need people to remind us of those things sometimes. We can be blinded by our grief. I know I can, and I need um, people to come alongside with a text, a phone call, even just their presence to say, you are loved, God's for you. He hears you, he understands, his heart is, um, he identifies with you, he is good, he is kind, um, to continue leaning on those promises. But sometimes we need to be reminded of that too. Yeah, that's good. So it sounds like there are almost two pieces uh, in that. Is one, if you are grieving, uh, it's okay, own yeah. it. Uh, but definitely intentionally seek out other believers to find that encouragement. Uh, or two, if you're not grieving, but know of somebody who is, Absolutely. Uh, then just reach out. Don't be an island if you're that person. But mm -hmm. if you know of someone, don't allow them to be on an island either. You know what I mean? I think we have the good news of Jesus, which is good even in these scenarios because he's a God who fully relates with your grief in the sense of he also lost someone that he loves very much. And if the person that you miss, and I, you know, I, we see that everywhere in our church with the people that have lost a loved one, whether it's a child or a, a parent, a grandparent, it's like, hey, we, we're reminded every time we gather around the Thanksgiving table or at Christmas around the tree or our family get up, who's not actually present, right? And, and those things bring out, bring out pain, but it's also the gospel is even good on those moments to want to meet you in that, to reveal to you the, the heart of our father who actually also understands the pain and the grief that you have because he too lost a son. And if the person that you miss actually knows Christ, the beauty is that you get to be with them again. And we long for that, right? And that doesn't always encourage us in the now. But we can remember that 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that our God is a God of all comfort. And the word all is strategic to me because it's no matter what you face in life, whatever heartache you have, heartbreak you have, um, the grief that's heavy and, and weighty and real, he's saying all of it, I'm the guy, I'm the God who can come and, and provide comfort to that. And so what I love about the Gospels, it allows us to relate to a God who relates with us in every way. And that just gives a lot of courage and a lot of encouragement to keep pressing on and our trust in him, even though we have lots of questions and we may never have answers on this side of eternity. Yeah, and I know we're kind of, you know, a little maybe a little hyper-focused on maybe those who we've lost in, in death. And I'm not meaning to like be hyper-focused on that, but, you know, one of the 
other good tools is, is being willing to talk about that person. You know, that's part of owning it. That's part of the grief process is talking, is giving words, is giving time and energy to that. My dad passed away fall of 2004 and we just got together for Thanksgiving. And in, in a way, in, a, in some ways, it's like, man, that was forever ago. In a lot of ways, it's like, man, it, it kind of feels like yesterday still. But there was something about this Thanksgiving in particular. We found ourselves around the table for like an, it felt like an hour kind of grilling my mom on like her memories of when they met and, and where they, their first apartment was and different things that, and it was, it was actually powerful. And my mom was sharing stories about how she grew spiritually. And this is a new wife and a neighbor to the lady down. And it was just, we all just sat there as her kids and grandkids, just kind of receiving. Well, that helps with the grief too, is remembering those we've lost, um, and just giving, I guess, giving words to those things. Chance to re-celebrate. That's right. Hmm. Yeah. Man. Yeah, as I, I just add shortly, I think one of the hardest things in American culture is this idea of people who mourn feel like they're oddballs in a group of people. Like it's almost like we have an unstated timestamp on when we think we should be over and stop grieving. And so you feel like you're just a Debbie Downer every single time when really it's unrealistic to be quote unquote over grief in that time period. Like as Steve just shared, that was 18 years ago. Like is, is there never a time when you would miss someone or that you would grieve maybe a terrible diagnosis or a consistent uh, pain that you're gonna feel for the longevity of your life? Like that's, that's really hard. That's not easy to say, oh, well just get over. It's been two years, man. Like where are you at? I think the biblical command of mourning with those who mourn, we have to do better at the church, as a church, to do that. And I think part of that is, as you guys have been saying, allowing the people who mourn to actually express mourning. That's a hard thing. Now, I know that that's difficult because that assumes that people want to share. Sometimes it is space. Sometimes it's a card. Sometimes as the Spirit brings people to mind, you know, write them a card, say, hey, man, I've been thinking about you and praying for you. And that seems to be su uh, sufficient, especially if you know of people um, who are alone uh, or even the people who are removing themselves from regular fellowship. That is hard. Your heart goes out to them. But sometimes we say things that aren't necessarily helpful in those times. Two passages that I would turn to is uh, Proverbs where he says, even in laughter, the heart may ache, enjoyment and grief. And so there's this reality of even in the holidays when it's supposed to be a joyful time, you feel like you potentially have to put on a facade in order to be received by the people that you're around. And then you know that you go home and you're actually going to cry yourself to sleep potentially. I understand that. And Solomon knew that. Like even in laughter, your heart might actually not be in some of that laughter. And I think be, be honest and open and the Lord sees your tears. He knows your heart. He knows the grief. He is there with you even if you feel alone. That is a very difficult and I do not um, like that anybody feels that way, but that is the reality of our human condition. Second passage I would say is Paul. When he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's also another tension because as Josh said, in the Christmas season and even in the reality of just remembering the gospel and remembering what Christ has done for us, we are sorrowful over the things that happen, but the sorrow is not because of what Christ has done for us. It's because of the lack of things that we see that our hearts desire to be remade or renewed or restored. And so therefore we are sorrowful now, but yet we're always able to rejoice. That is not laughter. That is not um, giddiness. That is through tears. Sometimes that rejoicing is there. 
because you know that ultimately hope and bedrock of faith is actually that which God has promised he will do. So yeah, that's what the two things I'd share. That's good, yeah. And uh, I like the idea of faith because I think grief becomes essentially a black hole. Uh, if you don't have faith, it will suck you in uh, and you'll never get out uh, unless you have faith. And, you know, I, th I think part of grief is when you recognize your helplessness to change a situation, a difficult or bad situation, because, you know, uh, death was not a part of God's original plan. And when people die, it's a reminder that we're all sinners uh, and that there are consequences for that sin. Uh, fortunately, we have a savior in Jesus uh, and we cast ourselves upon him uh, and our hope, uh, our confidence, not just kind of this, this crazy, uh, maybe, I hope it works, uh, but our confidence is that Jesus will rescue us from death and specifically eternal death, uh, bring us back to life and bring us to him for eternal fellowship in heaven. And as you're staring down grief, it can feel super heavy. And there's, I guess, a time to admit the heaviness of it. But I don't think you can walk into it without faith by your side. Because ultimately your salvation and the salvation of us all depends on God's ability to reverse the curse and undo it. Uh, and so even in the, the depths of despair and what feels like hopelessness, you have to step into it saying, but I believe God is capable. Yes, it's dark. Yes, it's heavy. But yes, my God is able to do it. So yeah, as, as people grieve throughout the holidays, it is definitely a time that grief comes out uh, that you remember. Uh, but I think it's also a time to walk into it with faith and say, I'm going to confront what feels like my reality, which feels hopeless and dark. Uh, and I'm going to confront it with the light of Christ who stepped into the darkness to rescue us from darkness. Not always easy, but I think it's part of what the battle of, of faith really is. So That's great. I remember a message years ago that Matt Chandler gave where he was talking about grief and death and and he said, he said something along the lines of it, it always kind of bothers him when people are going through something like that and their initial reaction is, you know, but death, where is your sting? They immediately go, and he's like, the sting's right here, yeah. you know? And I think it's important to remember, too, is that, you know, JP, you're, you're, you're moved by things you're facing. I definitely am moved by things I'm facing. We probably could go around and just share deep grief that we've gone through that we're maybe currently facing. And it is important, you know, there is a sting. This side of heaven, there is a sting. Death and grief and crisis and heartache have a word, but because of faith, mm -hmm. because of what Jesus did, it doesn't have the final word. Right. And that's a really important thing to cling to. Speaking of promises, an important promise to cling to and to hope in. But man, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to hope in that promise sometimes. Well, and I know what feels uncomfortable for me uh, is putting God on the spot. But I feel like he's offered, uh, and I think Paul says this in Second Corinthians where he calls him the God of all comfort. And so uh, it's, it's easy, again, to go down that road of hopelessness and despair and, oh, man, the loss is just so great. And I think, you know, if I'm honest about my own heart and my own faith, it's so easy to say, not say, but think, 
I really don't think God can make up for this. I don't think God can meet me here or give me comfort. But I think what Paul seems to be insinuating is he is the God of all comfort. And so if you, if you invite him into that, which isn't just like your own little personal thing in your prayer closet. It may be, but it's also inviting the community of believers because this seems to be what Paul is saying. He has comforted us so that we may comfort you. I think there is comfort from God within the people in the community of God. And part of it is leaning into that faith and saying, okay, I trust that God will comfort me. And rather than just going off by myself to grieve by myself, although again, as we've said, there is a time and a place for that. Uh, it's ultimately leaning back into the community of believers and back into God himself and saying, hey, you call yourself the God of comfort. I trust you. I want your comfort. Will you meet me here? Will you meet me now? Well, hey, before we wrap up, um, maybe it would just be appropriate to just spend a moment in prayer for those who are listening, who this might totally define their holiday season, their Christmas. They might be going through something. And so, Father, we just want to take just a brief moment for those who are listening. I know for, for us guys who are sitting here um, that we've been talking, we definitely feel the weight of what we're talking about. But, Lord, we know there are people listening, know there are people in our church community and in so many other communities that are facing hard things. Uh, people in the school system are facing hard things. People in their jobs are facing hard things. They're facing physical or health crisis. And, Lord, we just pray that you would prove yourself, I guess, to say it that way, that you would show yourself to be the God of all comfort, that you would uh, comfort people who need comfort through your word as they're driving along the road through a song that they might hear, through this podcast that they might be encouraged through the community, through their own community of, of people in their, in their uh, specific church bodies, Lord, that they would find encouragement, that it would be communal, like, like JP was just talking about. Lord, would you just comfort those who need comforting this holiday season, this Christmas season? Would you um, just show yourself to be so present and real and tangible and that meet, as you meet people in their grief, that they would cling to you and that it would just kind of build them up and give them new hope and new vigor and a, a refreshment of their spirit that they need uh, in this season. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, great discussion. I'm hoping I choose something maybe a little more appropriate to close this out than that normal rock song. So hopefully it's nicer music playing. Uh, but we want to thank you for joining us here on The Post. If you haven't already, we'd encourage you to click follow, subscribe, or like on your podcasting app to make sure you get notified when we release an episode. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear those. Just connect with us via email, which is redemption or info at redemptionmi.org, or you can send us a message on social media at redemptionmi on Facebook or redemptionchurchmi on Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.